This is an ABC podcast. Uh, hi, Lisa. I absolutely love your podcast and I've found so many great episodes uh, to listen and re-listen to. One thing I would love to hear a bit more of is some podcasts focused towards the early stages of a career. So, for example, how to create influence when you're in a junior position or haven't been at an organization very long. Um, so, for context, I'm currently in my second short-term contract, but these don't really leave much time to prove myself or implement projects that can foster others' trust in me. So, yeah, I think it'd be really cool to hear other perspectives on this and um, ways not just to be taken seriously, um, but to create actual impact and change. Mm. So how do you make an impact, advance your career? And what if your boss just wants you to shut up, do your job? Well, we'll be looking at all of that with thought leader, author and entrepreneur Holly Ransom and Atari founder Nolan Bushnell. Now, Nolan's been described as the godfather of the video game industry. You may remember Pong, Space Invaders. Well, he was also Steve Jobs' old boss before Apple, so we'll be tapping into some of his expert insights as well. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and welcome to This Working Life. Holly Ransom, so what advice would you give our caller, Holly? What a great question from your call in terms of, you know, challenging themselves mm. at that early stage of the career. And and I think it's one that we hear a lot of people who are in either the gig economy or are kind of, you know, I guess finding their feet in their working world, piecing together contracts and hoping that they'll turn into part-time and full-time employment. I, I've certainly felt that. I've, I've done a number of those sort of contract gigs where, you know, the, the role has been to come in as a, as a consultant or come in on a piece of strategy. And, you know, the want for me is always to have an impact with the work that I'm doing. But yep. particularly when I think you get that alignment, and the thing I would ask the caller to begin with to think about is, you know, is it the sort of place where you get a sense that they're aligned with your values and impact? So sometimes you come into a contract and you go, you know what? This is not the sort of organisation that's going to hear what I have to say or that's interested in the sort of contribution I'm talking about want to make. So I think there's one thing I'd say to begin with on just that filter criteria. Is it worth my effort and energy in this particular role at this particular moment? Have or you figured that skills- out, Holly, straight away? Oh, I think you, you definitely do because you, you can start by asking questions. You can see if there's a curiosity to explore these things. You can offer up some of the ideas. Hey, how about this? Have we ever considered X? You know, you can put forward and share some material about some of these ideas. I was having this conversation with an organisation a couple of weeks ago where they were thinking about how to set their um, employee value proposition. We're talking a lot about the great resignation and everyone that we're expecting to sort of head overseas or change jobs. And so they acknowledged they had a bit of work to do in that area. And what they came back with wasn't really all that compelling. And so I challenged them on it and said, hey, here are some links to some companies that are doing some really interesting stuff. You know, have a look at Atlassian, have a look at Southwest Airlines, have a look at this, that and the other. How about we try and do something like this for this organisation? And straight away they engaged with the material. Yep, you're right, we can do better and went back to work. And so I think you can test the water a little bit by dangling out some ideas, some examples and seeing if you get any bites. And I'm hearing you say then, raise it early, speak up soon. Is there any danger in that, Holly? And what about the reaction of maybe you should listen and learn first? (laughs) So I think great, great point. And there's a couple of things I'd say there. First, I think it's always 
um, that key kind of Stephen Covey bit of advice, seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Yes. So you absolutely have to get the lay of the land first. And one of the things that that will help you identify is who do you raise it with first? You know, it might be that you've got a colleague. It might be that you've got another team member. It might not be your direct manager or the boss that you choose to raise it with first. So you can actually bring it up in a more collegial environment or maybe with someone that's a bit more open to these new ideas first and actually workshop with them. Hey, how would I take this to the, you know, the CEO? Or, hey, how would I think about running this up the flagpole of the organisation and seeing if this is something that there might be benefit in. And then you take that feedback on because they might have really good suggestions and you might also learn some information. You know what, we've tried something like this before and it didn't work. So if they were to be at all open to us trying it again, you'd have to help us think through how to get past these sorts of hurdles and challenges. So I think that's really important. Those people become sort of in part mentors, you know, they can help you kind of workshop and soundboard the idea and that's invaluable. The other thing I learned a lot early in my career, I think back to my early 20s and leading a lot of change projects in organisations but with external stakeholders, is sometimes people just will not listen to an idea for as long as it's coming out of your mouth. Mm. And that's a really challenging thing to sit with. But it also means if the idea is, you know, my, my philosophy is always I don't care who gets the credit as long as the change gets done, you know, sharing the idea with other people that can then serve as your advocate for the idea. And good people as well will give you credit where credit's due. They're not going to run away and take your idea. But the thing I've learned is that more often than not, change and impact conversations, decisions about whether you get a yes or no, they're going to happen in a room that you're not even in at a time where you don't even know the conversation's going on. And so one of your roles in kind of getting seek first to understand before you seek to be understood is working out who might be in those rooms and how when they bring up your idea or how when a conversation talks about what should we do next, how can you make sure someone's stepping in and advocating for what it is you believe needs to be the change the organisation enacts? Okay, so we've found the right person, say, and we're still this sort of younger worker. Give us one hot tip for how to have that conversation where you can influence and raise an idea. Okay, my biggest tip on this, everyone will have heard, um, and if you haven't, go go YouTube it. 50 million people have watched it, so some of you <laughs> listening probably already have. If you haven't listened to my friend Simon Sinek's TED Talk, Start With Why, go have a listen to that. And then I want you to challenge yourself to kind of 2.0 it effectively or to, to pick out the nugget of the idea. It's not just important to know our own why. It's really critical when it comes to change to know the why of the person that we're talking to. And so one of the most important things we can do in thinking about how to influence change is to identify what's the motivation of the person I'm trying to influence and how am I going to tell the story of this idea or this change initiative in a way that they're going to understand based on their motivation. So I've worked in a lot of organisations that have a really conservative approach when it comes to change. You know, they're very risk averse and understandably given the industries that they work in. So if I'm going to come in and and I made this mistake many times over (laughs) in terms of not having ears open to some of the change projects I was so passionate about early in my career, I'd come in and I'd talk about how we needed to disrupt things and we needed to reinvent it and this, that and the other. And all they heard in that was fear and uncertainty. They Mm. thought they were going to be guinea pigs. They thought things could go wrong or even more personally, they thought, well, hold on, if we reinvent things, do I have a job out the other side of it? Are you, you know, as a young upstart going to come take my job mm. or you know, change the field here so much that I can't play a leadership role in it anymore? So I think one of the most important things, you know, is there's kind of six basic buckets of human drivers and, you know, happy to share more of this with listeners in some of the show notes for you, but they're like certainty and safety. They're things like impact and growth. They're love and connection. 
And one of the things that we tend to find is people often communicate or give out what they themselves are motivated by or want to receive. So listen to the language that you hear your leaders, bosses, colleagues talk about. Are they emphasising risk? Are they talking about growth potential and challenge? Are they focused on how we improve, you know, the impact in the community or with the customers we're trying to serve? And then think about how do I tell the story of what it is I'm trying to get across the line in the language they want to hear? So, if you're talking to someone who's really risk averse about your change idea or not very open-minded to it, how would you talk to them about powerful data, for example, about the biggest risk they could be taking right now is to not take a risk like this? So, how can you be really mindful of communicating to them in the way that they want to hear? That's the biggest tip I can give. It's on you as the communicator to adapt the way that you're talking to the person you're trying to influence and that needs to hear it. Now, Holly Ransom, if I'm a tech-savvy junior, how do I change my brand from IT support help desk to useful knowledge worker? Uh, It's a great question. And, you know, I think uh, it's interesting. I I had the privilege of interviewing Indra Nui yesterday and we were having this exact conversation around financial roles because she's a former CFO who turned CEO of PepsiCo. And her um, conversation, the thing I really took away from um, her discussion around that was this piece around you've got to be technically brilliant. So, it's awesome that you've got those IT skills. And Lisa, you and I know they've got such great value to add to organisations left, right and centre right now. So, really great qualification skill to have. The thing she said then is you've got to step above your job description or your technical expertise. So, you've got to be thinking about the strategy and you've got to be challenging yourself to go growth and value how am I contributing to those things? So, how am I stepping up and thinking about, okay, with what we're trying to achieve, how can I be making a contribution to us growing? How can I be making a contribution to adding value in different ways other than just doing the job from a technical standpoint that I've been employed to do? And that's the the leap into where you start playing, you know, a leadership role, you start influencing decision-making and shaping outcomes, you know, at a quite fundamental level for the organisation. And that was the author of The Leading Edge, Holly Ransom. I'm Lisa Leong, and you're listening to This Working Life. My next guest is one of my childhood heroes. I grew up with a joystick melded to my hand because of video game pioneer Nolan Bushnell. Newsweek named him as one of the top 50 people who changed America. Nolan, what advice would you give your younger self starting out in this day and age? Well, I think... The most important thing is do what makes you happy. When your work's your play, your play's your work. And people are not good at what they don't like to do. (laughs) Yeah. And they tend to be really good at things they love. And so figure out what that is with you and then be passionate about it. The other part is when you're young, you're maybe not dumb, but you're very inexperienced. And so I really credit an awful lot of my later success by having just a whole bunch of, I probably had 20 different jobs before I was 19. And each one of those contributed a little bit to my database that ultimately proved to be important. And you have no idea what those, what's going to be important because you haven't figured yourself out, let alone the world. Am I hearing that a value then is patience? Maybe. Oh, no, no. You've got to be impatient. (laughs) Right. But you've got to be willing to pack your bags with knowledge. Like the number of people that say, I've got really good ideas, 
And I say, what's the economic model? They said, well, no, I'll, I'll get somebody to figure that out for me. I said, you're going to fail. You know, if you cannot articulate the financial model of your idea, you haven't figured out your idea. And so a lot of people, particularly engineers, they couldn't go through a spreadsheet, you know, if their life depended on it. And so they're crippled, you know, because businesses, the language is numbers. And uh, I really encourage them to be a little bit broader in their outlook. And so as you're going through the 20 different jobs, do you need an idea of where you want to go then? Had no clue. Had absolutely no clue. All I knew is that I wanted to understand the world as much as I could. And early on, figured out this 80-20 principle that it takes you 20% of the time to learn 80% of a job. And so I always tried to stay on the learning curve. When I kind of had things figured out, I wanted to change jobs so I could learn fast on something else. And do you just follow your nose then for what is the next thing to learn? Yes. And oftentimes I become opportunistic. If if an interesting opportunity came my way, I'd grab it. And uh, always trying to step up one or two pegs on the on the ladder. And so it's actually surprising how many people just stay in the same job at the same salary, at the same competence for years. When in fact, six months, six months, they say, gee, I'm going to look like a job hopper. I say, yeah, in your next interview, you don't necessarily have to be totally truthful. (laughs) Now, you've been involved in a lot of very successful startups. Some have taken years to develop and some that didn't come to much. But you worked on uh, HDTV, for example, for 15 years before the technology was available. And one of your latest ventures called LearnUp, you began in 2015. Now, we're going to get to LearnUp in a moment, but tell us about what values you learned from starting things and letting them bubble along? If I were to analyze my successes, they all had one thing. They were the right thing at the right time. And a lot of times, my failures were it was too soon. The technology was not mature. Like my robot company was probably one of my biggest financial disasters personally because I loved it. Mm. technology was just so primitive that I couldn't get the guy to do what I wanted him to do. And for some strange reason, it just was not mature enough. So my advice is if you're going to do a startup, write three business plans of three different businesses and put them on the shelf and let them marinate. Right now, my marinade shelf probably has 10 business plans and they're not extensive business plans. They're basically two or three pages where I, I take it further than an idea. I, I kind of explore the market. I explore the finances, that sort of thing. If you only have one idea, the only time is now. The only place is here. If you have a bunch, all of a sudden, you can look at the world and say, ah, plan three fits exactly what's happening now. And so that's where LearnUp comes in. I tried this educational startup and we proved we had wonderful technology, but the market wasn't ready. A lot of kids didn't have Chromebooks yet. Teachers didn't want to do anything. But because of the pandemic, all of a sudden, the whole idea of online education and homeschooling, it's resonant and it's exploding. And so we just 
breathe some life into it. And now, wow, explosive growth, the right time, the right place, all the previous angst that I had wiped away. And what do you think younger workers can learn from your approach to the 10 business plans and and their approach to workplaces in this day and age? I think by broadening their horizon a little bit. If I were to be a college professor in a business class, I'd say, you've got to write a whole different business plan every week uh, in order to get a decent grade out of this class. I think that it's so easy to become monofocused. And by being forced out of your comfort zone, that's where the magic happens. Now, you and the late Steve Jobs, you're very good friends, used to hang out in Paris together. I've read your book. Now, I know that you said that one of your biggest mistakes that you made was not taking up the offer of a third of Apple. And we have to ask you, why didn't you take up the offer? I thought that the personal computer was going to be important, but I felt that Steve was not CEO material, and he wasn't. And I've often thought that my saying no really, really helped Steve because the guy who said yes was a guy named Mike Markola, who actually became the first president and really a one-on-one mentor for Steve. And I believe that that combination was what allowed Apple to get off the launch pad. If it had been me, I'd have had money, but I wouldn't have had the time. And so I'm not sure that if I'd made that investment, if Apple would be what it is today. Maybe it would, but maybe not. Thank you so much, Nolan Bushnell. Now, has COVID been a game changer in terms of what employees want in a workplace? Holly, we'll go to you. I definitely think so. I think, you know, one of the themes of the pandemic, or at least how we're going to reflect on it in terms of its ramifications on work, you know, one is I think we proved to ourselves that we can do things that we never thought were possible. Like we can actually work remotely. We can make things work, you know, without having to get on a plane for every meeting, without having to be in a room with with our colleagues all the time. I mean, a lot of that was just completely inconceivable 24 months ago. And you look at the way we've been forced to adapt, the way business models entirely have pivoted, you know, in order to find a way through and maintain not only people's businesses, but people's livelihoods over the course of the pandemic. It's been extraordinary, the innovation and adaptation we've seen. But part of it is also a complete reset of employees' expectations. And, you know, increasingly now we're hearing conversations around digital HQ, the notion that the physical office is now going to be supporting the digital one. I think a lot of people People have had a forced pause uh, and have reevaluated the role that they want their work to play in their life, the sacrifice they might want to make to do it in terms of commute or the level of passion they want to be getting out of what they're doing every day. So there's a massive reset. And I think one of the things that's placed a, a big focus on is, is culture and purpose. You know, you've you've got to have a destination people want to show up at. You've got to have a vision that people want to get out of bed and be a part of. Um, and that's going to be, it's going to challenge some organisations who haven't lent into that work and then haven't necessarily thought about, okay, if we're, we're real about that and this war for talent is a, a very big thing, how, what are we going to do? How are we going to change up the way that we work? Uh, and that's not just about days in the office versus being able to have flexibility to work remotely. That's investment in 
talent and learning development. That's things like the importance we're placing on mental health. That's the seriousness with which we're taking our corporate social responsibility. We've known for a long time that that was coming with the millennial generation. You know, the forecast is they're going to be 75% of the world's workforce by 2025. And it's a generation who've been pushing the envelope on this since they joined the workforce, you know, a decade ago. But now with the pandemic, a lot of this has been accelerated. And so I, I think it is a, a fundamental reset in uh, the, the kind of employee and workplace conversation and uh, environment. Nolan, what's your view? I could not agree more. I mean, fundamentally, I find for me, I think I'm 400% more productive now than I was before. I've got a company that the CEO is in Spain. The chief marketing officer is in Stockholm. The company's headquartered in London. Our head technical officer is Turkish in Istanbul. And most of the software is being written in Pakistan. And I'm in Los Angeles as chairman of the board and primary shareholder. And the company has accomplished in a year more than the previous company did in three years. Nolan, now you're the author of Finding the Next Steve Jobs, How to Find, Hire, Keep and Nurture Creative Talent. What is your message for people who don't see themselves as being creatives or being in a job where creativity is required? I believe that they need to have a mind reset because I can't think of a single job that doesn't require a certain amount of problem solving. And the best way to solve a problem is to try things that make things more efficient, that allow you to do more for the amount of hours that you're spending. And the people who do that, who've worked for me, have always gotten raises. And the people who are just kind of poking the time clock, showing up for eight hours, but fundamentally just doing what's asked of them, those tend to be left behind. I like to tell young entrepreneurs, don't hire dead people. <laughs> that always gets a laugh. And I say, because what really happens is maybe as much as half the population are dead from the neck up. They don't think. They're not out of the box. They're not passionate. They basically are just waiting for something to happen to them where they can be buried. Whereas the live people, that's where all the excitement is. And when Holly was talking about going into certain companies, I try to figure out whether the company is dead or not <laughs> very quickly, because if you have a bunch of dead people running a company, there's nothing going to happen there. Whereas if there's vibrance and passion, my hiring practice is very simple. I hire for passion, not experience, not college degrees, not work experience passion. Because if they're passionate, they can learn so fast any of the jobs that they become some of the best employees. Holly? I, I love that notion of, you know, don't hire dead people. And from the point of view of, you know, our caller who kicked off the conversation asking about how to add value, that notion of that being a lens that you look at companies through, like, yeah, you don't want to work for dead companies. You don't want to work for companies that believe that the status quo is the best way to do things because the reality is, you know, and I think Einstein said it better than anyone, the definition of insanity is thinking you keep doing the same thing and get a different result. You know, you want to be working with 
organisations and with leaders and with teams that are challenging themselves to go, okay, how do we do things differently? Because we know with the pace of change in the world right now and the degree to which everything's shifting, you know, from the rapid technological advancement to the way culture's changing and demographics to all manner of other challenges and opportunities we could point to, that if you're standing still, you're falling behind. So that notion of, you know, you want to be working for people that are alive, people that are going, how do we do better? How do we do things differently? How do we challenge ourselves? Where are our blind spots? I think that's a really great lens to be putting over, particularly the choices that you make early in your career. One of the best bits of advice a mentor gave me, I was 19 years old and it's been a a guiding principle that I've used in my life since, is it's more important the people that you work with and for than the work that you're doing. And I think that's a really great guide. It speaks to what I was talking about with regards to, you know, pack your bags with value. Who are the people that can help you do that bag packing? Who are going to be the great teachers? And how do you sit at their feet and learn from them? That's probably one of the most valuable things you can spend the early part of your career doing. Thank you to my guests today, thought leaders Holly Ransom and Nolan Bushnell. I'm Lisa Leong. You've been listening to This Working Life. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.